Flat Earthers, my climate change deniers, welcome to Times of Flat Circle, a look at how humans keep getting it wrong. I'm your host, Joseph. I'm the youngest, and I'm here with the Romulus to my Remus, my brother Adrian. What up? This is Adrian, recording live from the attic, like always. Go ahead and throw it to uh, the world's number one Michael Jackson fan, Mr. Hyman. What's up, guys? Broadcasting to you live, uh, rocking a T-shirt right now from a Zerd RTD crew. Uh, the name of the brand is called Six Block. Uh, for, on that note, I'll throw it over to Andre. By Andre, I mean Hondo. Hey, what's going on, guys? It's Hondo calling in from uh, San Antonio, Texas. Happy to be here. Looking forward to conversation today. Um, I'll go ahead and toss it over to the man who can believe that it is butter. Um, I'll go ahead and send it over to my good friend, Andre. Glad to see everyone's faces again this week. Uh, I'd just like to publicly announce that I've been banned from making a lot of jokes. <laughs> well, not a lot of jokes, just uh, too just many. Just the funny jokes, ones. Which just is the funny ones. As objective as can be all the time. So, all right. We're here to talk about archetypes and their place in modern media. So, let's talk about the archetype we've chosen to talk about today, which is. A shadow archetype, actually, from a Jungian example that I want to get into with a traditional definition of by throwing it to Jaime. Hit us with that archetype of the addict. Uh, sure. So the the archetype and its fully realized uh, masculine potential, as these Jungian psychologists refer to it as, uh, the full the fully mature archetype is the lover, um, and therefore the shadow of that archetype. Uh, there's two versions of that, uh, the way the diagram is shown. Uh, there's the addict, and then there's the impotent um, lover. So tonight we'll be talking about um, the addict and their place in media and throughout history. Yeah, and this is something that I, I really think is going to be interesting to identify, just because how much goes into what an addictive personality looks like or is or is perceived as in modern day media so let's see how we can talk about it in terms of a historical standpoint what was everyone's first take on the idea that an addict is an archetype and how it comes up in just media that you've seen um i want to talk to hondo about this first actually because i want to see where you go with it and what your relationship with that archetype might be if you know anyone that is in that mindset or if you've seen it just through your friend group especially even in here with the five of us um yeah happy to start this off um just my understanding and research and experience with the addict archetype is um there's very much a concept of drive um, in the sense that you're constantly wanting, yearning, needing um, a certain thing, right? That can be an emotion, that can be a feeling, that can be a uh, societal status. It, it could be a plethora of things, right? Um, it's just a, it's that necessity of want um to where it blends into that necessity of need 
man, put me on the spot, bro. That's there's so many ways we can go with this. Um, speaking from experience, I think everyone to a certain extent has an addict's personality. Um, I can tell you that my personal perspective of an addict's personality is there just has to be that sense of, uh, stimulation, I guess that stimulation that helps you capture that sense of what it means to be alive. And it's, it's kind of a beautiful tragedy because it helps you feel life more than anything could ever hope to do, but it tends to be momentary. And when it's gone, it leaves you in this concept of yearning to where you want it so much that you're willing to abandon everything else just to experience that same sense of stimulation again. Like that's, I mean, I see it in myself. I see it in my groups of friends. Um, I see it in everyday media. Um, yeah, man, it's a broad topic, bro. <laughs> so it's kind of hard to, to narrow it down just to one succinct description. <laughs> well, let's give it a try. Let's give it a try. Let's go around the uh, room and talk about everyone's take just kind of like that. I know I put Hondo on the spot. Let's throw it over to Andre. So for me, it's partly what Honda was saying. There is, you know, I guess you're, you're looking for that sense of being alive. I think the other part of it is also you're trying to fill a void, right? There's, there's a hole and you're trying to do this thing or find this person or try this substance that fills that hole, at least momentarily, if not for a longer period of time, depending on how long you're addicted. So whether it's an experience, you know, there's like even adrenaline junkies have that thing where like you're just trying to get a high off of the next roller coaster or jumping out of a plane or whatever it is. But I think everybody has at least one thing that they're addicted to, whether we know it or not, or we're aware of it or not. Um, and I think that's really what I took away from it was we're all just trying to fill a hole. Yeah, it kind of lives in that subconscious part of your mind. Yeah, that, that tracks with kind of everything I read about in preparation to talk about this archetype. So finally, let's go to Adrian and he has to say on the topic, what was just kind of your initial response to talking about this this archetype of the addict? I, I don't know that it's much different than what Andre just kind of explained. I would say that uh, to me, there's also, in addition to everything Andre mentioned, like a sense of control. So I think it's, it's something where an addict is subservient to something outside themselves and are willing enablers of whether it's alcohol, sex, drugs, work, uh, you name it. And people can be addicted to anything, like Andre said, even pro-social things like uh, church. Um, but it's giving up that control of your life to this external factor, whatever the case may be. Um, I, I think that's probably the... Where, once the line gets crossed and you're giving up agency is when the, the real negative aspects of what it means to be an addict really start to arise, even when it's something like being addicted to Alcoholics Anonymous. You know, like you can be addicted to anything. And once you start giving up your agency, bad things tend to happen, I feel like. Nice, nice. So sounds like we're all kind of on the same page starting off, but I'm sure we'll get to some discussion about what it really means, what it doesn't mean. I feel like I'm right there with all of you. Uh, the distillation that I got from just kind of reading up on the archetype as a whole was coming down to 
a natural desire, a natural craving taken to the nth degree, taken to the extreme. Um, something that I've read a lot of Joseph Campbell, and that's something that I really identify with in terms of how I see uh, the world, especially people and their desires. His meaning for life came down to three words, which is just chasing your bliss. And I think that's something that a lot of addicts kind of feel that they're doing. It's just kind of the wrong way. Uh, so is that what they're getting wrong? Is is that what addiction stems from? The natural thirst, the natural craving, that void that people are trying to fill or escape from. And it feels good. It seems like the right thing you should be doing. And that is blissful in a sense, but maybe they're just chasing the wrong bliss. I would have to say that uh, I don't know that it's maybe chasing the wrong bliss. It, if anything, I feel like it would be a situation where uh, the addict is almost uh, someone who embarked on a journey and only got to like the first chapter. You know, it, it's like the um, the hero's journey. Like we, we're talking about archetypes and we keep going back to uh, these ways of being and these uh, mental models that kind of help us understand the world. I, I feel like you can frame this up into the hero's journey and being shown that there's a bigger world out there um, and kind of getting to the point where you're being shown just how far the pits of despair can really go. There's like a an aspect of you being able to take that journey uh, past that point of despair into self-actualization and realizing when you're coming out of it, you, you, like that journey just helped you become a bigger person or a better person than when you started. But I feel like a, a lot of addicts stop at the, the first chapter of that story. And, and that's where they, they live. That's the sweet spot where there there's a certain level of comfort and, and you guys can feel free to disagree me or have some discourse, but that's that's my take on it. No, I think that kind of hits the nail on the head in terms of why it is so prevalent in just modern day media or media in general. There's a redemption arc that pretty much follows. You can look at it even at as the 12 steps uh, for alcohol and not Alcoholics Anonymous, it kind of goes through that hero's journey arc and it kind of follows the story that we all see most played out in, I guess, protagonist driven dramas in TV shows or movies that have a singular character that takes that journey. Usually they're addicted to something. It may not be an obvious addiction, but it definitely could be something that maybe they're lacking in certain disciplines or lacking in willpower, lacking in something or an excess of something. Uh, but no, I think the hero's journey parallels are definitely there, uh, especially with just all of the movies that you can think of that have that kind of arc. Um, we can list a bunch of movies off the top of your head, I'm sure. So let's start going through that phase of getting into what it looks like in modern media, what the archetype actually plays out as that's maybe really obvious or maybe not so obvious. So what's something y'all thought of when you were looking at this ar archetype and thinking about movies, TV shows, books, any stories that you've seen recently or back when you were younger that just followed this timeline? Uh, so I'd like to start, Joseph, uh, first of all, by saying that I really disagree with all of you uh, in that 
uh, you all are saying that everyone is an addict at some point or another, or they have these sort of addictive tendencies. In my experience, that's absolutely not true. Not everyone has this type of tendency or uh, behavioral tendencies. I I think Honda actually came close when he said personality. Um, Those that do not maintain this are actually very reliable. Uh, They're emotionally stable. They tend to be more methodical. They are not, uh, they're much more tempered. Uh, They are not impulsive. Um, They are not erratic. Uh, So uh, I I really don't think that, that everyone has addictive tendencies or that everyone is an addict. And my problem with the word addict and junkie and things like that is, I mean, those came into our popular vocabulary due to 20th century psychology and psychoanalysis. Um, But the problem is that we have these terms uh, that maybe we actually haven't experienced in real life as uh, as they are described clinically. And so we see somebody who's having that extra beer as someone like an addict or a junkie or an alcoholic. And we use those terms so loosely without ever experiencing the full breadth of seeing someone uh, completely addicted. So that's my disagreement. But to get back to your question, uh, recently the documentary, uh, let's see, I can't remember what it's titled, but it's on John Coltrane, it's currently on Netflix right now. It kind of documents his journey uh, through music and uh, tells a more personal tale. Um, It has a lot of stories from a lot of the letters that he was writing to himself, his own journals. Um, and his journey through music, uh, being addicted to hard drugs, uh, eventually kicking the habit, um, so much so that he began soaring really after that life. And it became a spiritual connection between him and the music. It was either kick the habit and turn your life around or, uh, or just keep doing this and go down that road that Charlie Parker went down and you eventually die. Uh, but John Coltrane doesn't do that. He turns about face and then just becomes addicted to religion. So really, it was that kind of personality um, that would let him to do this. If he wasn't on music, if he wasn't on drugs, it was religion for him. So much so that he even started to sign his albums as letters to God in the liner notes on the back. And it was the same type of personality that you see within jazz. Again, not every jazz musician was a hardcore drug addict, but those that were like Chet Baker, Art Pepper, Art Blakey, uh, who checked out of the scene um, for years and had a really hard time struggling to come back. Um, so the, the, j- the jazz musicians are notorious for hard drugs and drugs fueled the creativity. Uh, that's really just a falsehood. And I'm using falsehood, not the word myth here, because myth means larger story. Uh, but that's really just a falsehood and that they had those type of addictive personalities. And if it wasn't drugs, it was the music. And if it wasn't music, it was something else. But not all jazz musicians had that. Therefore, not showing that everyone can be addicted to something. So, so Jaime, if I can kind of carry that for you, um, or at least attempt to, forgive me. I, I, we hear, like, most people tend to correlate addiction with, oh, let's immediately correlate it to drugs, right? Um, can I take what you're saying and try to assume that what you're referring to is that there, there's, there's a concept of something else being in control, right? So to whether it's the drugs, whether it's the drive for music, whether it's the religious assumption of being a messenger of God. When it comes to the addict personality, it's just that it's that concept of something else being in control. And that seems counterintuitive to our culture today, because as humans, we want to be in control. We want to be the ones that are at the forefront of deciding our destinies. And when we have something else that is defining that for us, we essentially forfeit that concept of control, but we do that at the contra- in the construct of I am choosing or I am letting that control me because it is giving me something that I in return could not give myself. 
like feel free to disagree of course but that's that's kind of what i feel like you're trying to say no and i think not so much but you actually brought up some good points but what i would say out of out of all that is that the subconscious takes control. So you said we forfeit control. I don't think we really forfeit control at all and that we're driven by the subconscious, which is which is ironic because we're talking about a shadow form of the archetype and that's what the subconscious is. So I think, Jaime, you're a little bit cheating just because you're bringing up actual addiction cases in history as opposed to media that is... I mean, you could say that the, the, the music that... Coltrane made was definitely driven and fueled by some kind of addiction. Um, and you could say that his addiction to uh, religion, just talking about replacing something with the other, replacing that void with something other than the drugs, talking about writing in the liner notes dedicated to, to God and all of the things that he's, he's doing, uh, that that just took the place of something else in his life. But I want to get into something that I think you touched on a little bit earlier. You said that not everyone is on that ad- addiction spectrum. Well, who's someone that you know that is not an addict with anything at all? Uh, I, I work with people. Um, uh, people people I've, I've volunteered with in community organizations uh, over the years. Um, and not, not, not so much like a specific person, but like uh-huh. who's a, a, who is a person that is not a, who's that not addicted to something? What does that person look like? Um, sometimes that can actually be quite dull, um, but only compared to the impulsive and erratic and reckless person. You know, uh, like I said, they're, they're much more methodical. Uh, they're much more tempered. Um, they're not not really irrational unless they're hung up on some stubborn kind of thing. Um, much more uh, less open to experience. Um, you know, all, all those kind of traits of the of the tempered, indi- uh, rational uh, individual. So much, more, much, more, much more calculating and methodical. Uh, than someone who's impulsive, reckless, and erratic. Can I can I take this in a weird direction? Uh, so, like, let's say we're talking about the story of the Hobbit. Would not the main character be addicted to comfort? Like he he's yeah, not he's not living like a fully realized life until he goes on the this adventure and starts living more erratic and starts doing things that were outside of that comfort zone and i would say that uh you're again you're you're submitting your agency to uh a maybe it's a subconscious force but it's still a force that um doesn't really uh, respond well to reason or to to the right, uh, I would say, like the reward uh, response center in your brain. It's really more of a, uh, this is what I do, and that's how I live. Um, And I think A Hobbit is a good example of explaining everything that Jaime just described to someone that's not addicted and pointing out the fact that they're not living a realized life, and therefore they are addicted to something that something just so happens to be being a comfortable, boring person. And you said submit agent, but that's that's the thing. I think the, I think the subconscious grabs a hold of you and takes control of you before you even had a chance to recognize that you had something to submit to. I, I still don't think that negates the fact that everything you described it can be framed up as 
someone that is uh, addicted. I just want to say, guys, I am like all in for this fight right now. <laughs> this is where I wish no, we had like I, I the, think... the boxing bell ringing sound and just say go at it. <laughs> I was like, fight between Adrian and Robert. <laughs> <laughs> We're about the same size, so I mean, it's like, even match. I'll be in the same weight class, so it works. <laughs> I mean, I've seen your feet; they're pretty hairy, but you know, there's there's definitely a, a side to fall on on this argument i think i'm firmly on the side of, of adrian's point i think you can frame anything to make it sound a little bit like someone has to be addicted to someone uh i know what was it in a conversation we had recently adrian you were talking about eminem being extremely addicted to drugs just really common for being as wealthy as he was and as uh, able to do whatever he wanted to do replacing that with exercise was something that definitely happened when he had to make a change he had that i guess what would you call it he, he took that hero's journey and he he crossed a few thresholds and came out with a little bit more knowledge on the other side um, and see that's the thing that's that's the thing joseph is that he he had to go and do something else, which is why I was saying he cl- clearly is an example of that type of person that has that kind of behavioral tendency is because he couldn't just use the drugs. Let's say let's say he bought into the falsehood, right? Of like, yeah, drugs fuel my career, fuel my artistic sensibilities. I'm going to do this now that I got my first album platinum dropped, you know, or I, I hope it went platinum. It was pretty dope. Uh, is that OK? Now I'm done. Now I'm done. Now I've reached that pinnacle. Okay, good. It was a means to an end for me. It was a tool that I was using to help me accomplish something. Now I don't need to do that anymore. No, that wasn't the case. So he clearly had to go, as Adrian said, started exercising for running on a treadmill for eight hours straight or something like that. That's an example of someone having those kind of behavioral tendencies. And then getting back to if everyone has that, then if everyone's an addict, then no one's an addict. No, I, I would say that it's a it's a spectrum. I mean, just just because yeah, yeah. there's high functioning, intelligent people doesn't mean that there's no autistic people in the world. Unless you would disagree, Jaime. No, I think it's I think it's interesting the difference between Jaime's definition of methodical and just I guess not really fact based thinking but logical thinking or, or justific- justification for certain actions uh, is kind of at odds with the general idea of addiction which is maybe just calling it lack of discipline just lack of willpower to, to, to do what you need to do and you end up succumbing to those vices or that, that false bliss let's call it but What's your take, Andre? What's your take on the fact that those definitions can be so differing, but still kind of talking about the same thing? I mean, we still live in the greatest country in the world, so you guys are welcome to disagree. Um, But I do like, Joseph, that you brought that up. It is, I think for me, it's more of a lack of discipline. I'm going to give my my Jocko shout-out of discipline equals freedom, and like it lets you do the things you want to do. But even that guy, you can look at and say like, man, he's addicted to working out. He gets up every day at four 30 works out. And for me, it is, I'm, I'm no surprise. I'm leaning more towards Adrian because it is sort of a spectrum where just because you're not completely addicted to something doesn't mean you aren't trying to fill that hole, but it's tough to disagree with Jaime as if everybody's super, no one is logic because I use that all the damn time at work. 
Yeah, so there's a reason to think that it's a personality trait or a obvious identifier that someone is an addict because they act a certain way. But so you're saying it, it can't really be a spectrum, Jaime. Uh, well, I'm actually, I've, as y'all have continued to talk, I've actually been thinking over that. And one of the things that changed uh, in terms of uh, psychological evaluation is that we went from Myers-Briggs to the big five personality traits, which are openness to experience, extroversion, uh, and three others. But uh, the big five personality types are actually on a spectrum. They're on a range because personalities and behaviors are on a spectrum and a range. And Myers-Briggs was very either or. So maybe even in my own definition versus Adrian's, maybe I'm in the either or thinking. Maybe I'm not thinking of it because I really don't think I've thought of it in terms of uh, being on, uh, that type of addiction, I guess, being on a uh, on a spectrum. So I'm, I'm thinking that for the first time right now. That maybe you were so wrong. in your estimation. <laughs> I don't know. No, it's, it's <laughs> He's open to it's the possibility good. that he could be wrong. Maybe. All right, so, hi, Matt. I think a good thought exercise is to try and come up with the media that most aligns with your definition. What is something that you see black and white? This is an addict and this is not. And there may be two characters that are both uh, protagonists or protagonist-antagonist couple. Uh, something that, that helps us see what that looks like in story or in real life maybe there's a real life example that we might know while you're thinking of that i'm gonna get into this so it's interesting that adrian brought up alcoholics anonymous because i think this plays into the whole union archetype thing uh it seems like he had a pretty prominent role in the creation of alcoholics anonymous there's uh definitely an apocryphal story that I stumbled upon about a patient that he had who was tangentially related to the founder or one of the co-founders of Alcoholics Anonymous. And the letters between these two people, the the co-founder and uh, Carl Jung, were just pretty interesting, to say the least. And the two that are obviously most circulated had something that plays into exactly what we were talking about just earlier, which is... Uh, what he called an addiction that was akin to a spiritual thirst. So the person he was trying to treat for their alcoholism was someone that was so addicted, it was almost as if he was searching for a union with God through his alcohol consumption. That's the fervor and that's the intent that he had with going through those trials and tribulations, I guess, of everyday life living as an alcoholic. And this may or may not have been a person who actually had a really well-off life. They were a third-generation company owner that had a lot of money in the Northeast. And it kind of just plays into that whole, I don't know, it's easier to be an addict when your life is generally pretty easy because that's what makes life hard uh, is life being too easy when life is hard you don't really have time to get caught up in stuff like that that's what it seems like to me but um 
No, it's interesting that 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 came up. So I just wanted to bring that that little piece of information up. Did you come up with anything, Ivan? Well, I I did, and something very pointed, but. I don't want to ruin next week's show if we have some media for us to consume um, and talk about uh, a a film, because it was a movie that I'm thinking about right now. Answer the question. Yeah. Okay. Uh, So the movie Film Rounders, uh, Matt uh, Damon and Edward Norton came out in 1998, about two poker players on the New York underground scene. Uh, one of them is, for the most part, I get, well, I, I was about to say straight shooter, but I guess you really can't be a straight shooter when you're playing uh, poker in a state where gambling is legal. Uh, so the character of Worm, Edward Norton's character. Uh, so he's, as at the start of the film, we see him in jail and for distributing credit cards. Um, and his buddy, Matt Damon, busts him out. And the first thing that Worm wants to do is go and take him to a poker game. He's like, got to go, got to have my fix. And Matt Damon's like, well, I'm not really about that life anymore. I'm trying to study because I actually lost all my money playing poker and I stopped. Um, But since you're in town, sure, why not? Uh, So we keep seeing Worm go back to his old habits. You know, he's been locked up, uh, comes back out, starts uh, cheating, uh, starts stealing money, essentially, starts gaming a bookie. Uh, acting like he's going to be able to get away with all that money. Uh, so clearly an addict, and he's just doing this throughout and throughout and throughout. And towards the end of the film, uh, no spoilers here, but has to move on and is more than likely going to kind of do the same thing as where he's moving on to. Versus uh, Joey Kanish, who's a, a, ri- a rounder, a true grinder. That is, uh, he shows up to work every day and plays poker for a living. I think one of the lines in the movie is, I'm not chasing some pipe dream here. Um, feeding my kids. This is work. I have rent, alimony that I have to pay. This is a job. So for Joey Kanish, it was something that he had to show up and work to, uh, to do every day for uh, Worm and him. It was a way of him getting his kicks and pulling one over on the bookies or these uh, suckers or these chumps that he felt he could cheat out of their money. So to still both doing the same action um, of gambling illegally but one was kind of treating it very much matter of fact, and the other one was much more impulsive. So would it be difficult for you to, I guess, identify that Kanish wasn't an addict at all, or that he, we could maybe frame him as an addict of something? Yeah, that's what I was going to say. From what we could- from what we could see in the film, it was just very much like, guys, I'm here to pay rent. I'm not here to try and be the hot shot on the block and take down every pot. I'm, that's what I'm not waking up to do. I'm waking up to pay some bills. Well, let's see. Adrian, could you frame Knish's role in that film as an addict somehow? Would, would that fall into your Hobbit lifestyle? I, I do think it, it's, um, to me, that is a little bit of, of a cheat in, in regards to the fact that that's not a main character. You don't see his story fleshed out. You don't know how he got to the state of being that he's in in that movie. You know, he's just there as almost a, a piece of uh, the set and the story, a goalpost or a signpost, not a goalpost, a signpost um, to be able to compare to the other characters. Um, if anything, he might might have been written simply as a foil to see just how unhinged Worm was in the movie. Um, but 
we, we don't know what his story was. Like, did he start off as Worm? Did he lose money? Did he lose something important to him uh, through being impulsive that led him to rock bottom and let him go past uh, that first chapter into uh, the, the rest of the story of the hero's journey and come out a better person at the end of it. I mean, cause he's a pretty old guy in the movie too. And so uh, when you think about it, like that, that is the person who worm has the potential to be after he, he truly hits rock bottom. Um, but of course, Matt Damon doesn't let him. Matt Damon saves him every time. Would you say he coddled him? I would I'd say, say he, he, <laughs> <laughs> I would say he, he definitely coddled him. Yeah, the definition yeah, yeah. of enabling, by the way, is removing the natural consequences of one's actions. Just want to go ahead and let that linger there. Yeah, so I would say that Worm is definitely enabled in that sense because his consequences he goes through a lot of the consequences but also he's saved from a lot of the worst consequences by someone that is suffering kind of the same addiction it seems like there's uh, there's the same addiction but maybe just a different personality or different uh, sense of character I, I, I wouldn't even say that. I think it, it comes down to, in that movie at least, um, they're both addictive in, in their behaviors. But when it comes to, to skill and talent and dumb luck, the outcomes become very different, right? So like you, you can see a successful person, um, let's say like an Elon Musk. I mean, he, he's a gambler in terms of his big ideas, um, but those skills and, and natural talents and a little bit of dumb luck um, has led him to be a very successful person that we, we see as a role model. Um, but how much is that uh, a testament to how addicted he is to being uh, the worm of the business world? And trying to put one over on investors, trying to put one over on the naysayers, uh, doing things different just to do them different, right? Like it, at the end of the day, is that behavior any really different? And, and is only the outcome different? And do we only care about outcomes? We don't care how um, put together that person really is. I think we're getting into a difference here of functional addict versus dysfunctional addict. I don't know if that plays into the archetype, but it does sound like we're talking mostly about people who can channel their addiction into something that is pro-social. Yeah, yeah, pro-social, or at least a means to an end. And that's, well, that's the, that's the fully realized uh, archetype is is the lover. So the lover is the artist, uh, the, uh, the published and, and and recorded artist. Uh, the lover is the poet. The lover is the novelist. Like they they took the time to break their work down into what they needed to. Not just like Adrian said, like not just getting hung up on the first chapter. They actually finished the book. So it sounds like you're also saying they they create, whereas an addict is more, I guess, related to destroying. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, think of think of how much of a, a villain Elon Musk would be if, like, he just took billions of investor dollars and flushed it down the toilet. Oh, he definitely is a villain. Didn't you see Venom? <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> we just haven't realized yet that like we're gonna get to Mars and he's actually a Martian who has been trying to get spaceships to bring his Martian army back home. <laughs> or he just wants to get home. Is it just like a really sad ET story? <laughs> Yeah, I'm definitely ready to see the heel turn of Elon Musk. That's going to be an interesting one. All right, so getting back to that opposite idea, the destructive addict, what does that look like in media? What is the person who is just so lacking in discipline that they can't change, um, but still maybe end up going through uh, some semblance of the hero's journey? Uh, One thing that comes to mind is Constantine, maybe, just with the cigarettes. That's the one of the most uh, interesting pieces of that movie is just his relationship with the cigarettes, and, and the big reveal at the end was also something that I enjoyed very much. But is that something that that plays into maybe the lack of discipline? Like he had to go through so much to figure out that life is worth living even if it's a separate kind of life than what he was used to before. So that whole call to action, the thresholds that he's crossed. Um, not sure if that plays into what we look for in media stories that tell the story of the addict. I, I do feel like everyone's kind of hit, hitting hitting it on the nose in terms of going after like the, the very, very obvious addict type stories i i feel like you you can definitely look at all different kinds of stories and frame it up in in terms of what an addict is like the hobbit for instance like hondo andre do you guys have any oddball uh examples of when you really think about it it's a story of a either an addict getting out of his addiction or just straight up embracing it Instagram, uh, social media influencers are the perfect example of people embracing the addiction and capitalizing on it. Embracing the algorithm. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Just like you, you understand the formula and now you choose to exploit it. Like, I I think more kind of to Adrian's, what he's asking for like a low key standpoint, I think social Again, it feels so weird even saying that, but social media influencers, their job, from my understanding, which correct me if I'm wrong, is literally to go on Instagram, capture a lot of likes because people know that a lot of likes make you feel good and then try to either advertise, capitalize or monetize the fact that they can attract a lot of likes. And it gives you that inject of feeling like, hey, I'm accomplishing something or I'm being derived from something in the sense that what people all crave these days. So, again, we're talking about social uh, addict archetypes and social media. I think social media as a concept is the definition of that because you have your Facebooks, you have your Snapchats, you have your Instagrams. And it's gotten to a point to where people are, in fact, being defined by that and they're being controlled by it. And a perfect example of that is your social media influencers because they're literally monetizing and making a living off of that very concept. Yeah. Well, so we've been doing this forever. It's just product placement. It's just a new venue for it. And it's 
it's I, I would I basically describe it to my customers as like it's a more targeted TV commercial. You're basically blasting it out there, hoping these people are interested in it. And ideally, you're getting an influencer who is relevant to your product, but it may just be that you're hitting a hundred thousand people who don't care. But Andre, instead of waiting, you know, after a long week and it's Thursday and your favorite show comes on and you sit down and see that commercial, now you can actually just get it on demand like from your pocket and then you're given time. So uh, yeah, that's a good point, Hondo. It's like actually fundamentally rewiring uh, how it is that we function throughout the day. Uh, in my workplace, uh, we constantly have to um, tell people to, I'm on my phone. Uh, we constantly have to tell uh, the employees that I manage like not to be on their phone. And, and, and But it's it's you can't stop it, interestingly enough, unless you instruct a, uh, a force uh, sorry, enforce a strict policy um, that would eliminate all phone use. But good luck with that. You just hope your employees are cheap like me and don't have unlimited data. Hey, I'm right there with you, bro. My my data is calculated. I do not say I get home phone. and then I'm like, all right, time to open Instagram or Wi-Fi. <laughs> <laughs> there you go, smart man right there, smart the be, investor. Yeah, the beginning of every month, month you just show them a, a million videos. Just start email chains. Check out this video. <laughs> no, but that that kind of puts us in the position of being enabled. I mean, if so much of our daily lives are part of the culture that calculates addiction, because that's what people are doing since video games um definitely before then but since since video games have been on the market that's kind of the formula they know just how long to make you work at something and give you that shot of dopamine that shot of maybe a little bit of adrenaline to keep you going that has people straight up dying playing video games that's there's oh. been multiple cases of, of people that just like sit and don't eat long enough oh. to get very sick. Dude, no, I got a perfect example of that. Does it? Well, I, I'm admittingly on the podcast. I am ashamed to admit this. Has anybody here ever played Fortnite before? Yep, I play. It. Oh yeah, man. Okay, you want to know the one number one concept of addiction in that game that I have seen, and I it's I've seen it in two year old kids that play it. I've seen it in forty year old adults that play it. Microtransactions. And it's the idea that if you spend this $1 that someone else doesn't have, you will get this skin, you will get this gun, you will get this game, you will have something that no one else doesn't have, and it gives you that personality and that mindset of satisfaction to where you will buy any and everything just so that way you can say that you're better or you're different. And that is that a sense of, in my mind, that's like the definition of the addiction complex that we're talking about right now is because you're literally looking for any and everything that can make give you that sense of satisfaction. And I feel like a game like Fortnite has identified that concept to a T because when they even like when they took this microtransaction concept and have applied it in such a way that they're literally printing money anytime they're like, oh, hey, I'm going to give you a blue gun. Well, let's also make a red gun so that way people that want red guns can feel special about having a red gun instead of a blue one. Like, like it's crazy. And it also kind of ties into, I mean, you look at the fact that microtransactions are even part of dating apps and ways that we connect with each other. Like, I'm pretty sure you can pay for stuff on Tinder that makes you like super, super like them. Jaime, do you want me to talk about that? Yeah. Jaime, can you tell us how the grinder app works when you add extra money? I don't. Yeah, I, I haven't played Fortnite either. I was shaking my head when you asked that question. Hondo. Take it away, Andre. 
no, Joseph, you, yeah, you're correct. Like, Bumble's always telling me, so you spend whatever, $10, like, we'll put you in the spotlight and show you more. I'm like, are you just not showing me now? Like, they make me not want to use your app. But everybody has, like, a monetized version of it. And I think that was a good point, Hondo, was like, that's that's kind of where we're going now. It's And, you know, the old Modern Warfare days, that's where I was playing, was like you had to earn these different skins and things for, for what you were doing, and now you can just pay for them. Yeah, so I, I guess are we monetizing things in different ways now? Because it used to be you could monetize those ideas of addiction in stuff like movies that people would go see box office hits that used to make a lot of money that maybe now aren't um there's some examples of that that you can touch on but i think one that we could probably get a lot of traction out of is just the romantic comedy what's something that is in the formula of the romantic comedy that plays into the addict I, I would say that there's something to be said about the fact that uh, in in the rom com genre, the protagonist, usually a girl, is not looking to become well in the story at least, like the, the small time frame you get during the the rom com uh, script. Uh, she's not looking to become a better person. She's looking to find that other person to make her whole. That's usually how the story goes. And um, I, I think it's kind of strange in the sense that they were so popular and uh, felt so fun and innocent at the time. But now that like we we are living in an age of uh, independent women and self-actualized women, how how odd it seems to be someone that's uh, and even when the the protagonist themselves was an, an end of quote unquote independent woman. Uh, she was always uh, matched up with like the CEO of some other organization or like some executive or like a, an even higher powered profession than whatever high powered profession they had cast her in. So it, it, it's just a strange time capsule type of, of look on where our society was at the time. So are you saying that you're completely okay with taking the heat for saying that we're living in a post-feminist society, Adrian? Because that's what it sounds like. No, well, I, I don't know that it's a post-feminist <laughs> society. I think that, that we've hit a critical mass of of women that are, are striving to live self-actualized lives that like the media that's geared towards them is no longer selling them prince charming is going to come and fix everything for you and you don't have to do anything now um that consumption is more geared toward things like and i, I haven't seen it yet so maybe i'm wrong but like more more of a miss marvel you know like like there's a superman for the other gender now and you can go through hardships and you can come out uh a, a person that uh is a role model for for all you know like like that's something um in terms of stories that i don't think women had a story like that since maybe cleopatra uh but even way back then like like the the myth of cleopatra was she got by on her wiles and her looks it wasn't um, how cunning and crafty she was so it's easier now to call out when things are pandering to the woman who needs a man to make her whole 
or the woman who needs or yeah the woman who needs like a man, a man to make her yeah like I, I just feel like um that will be the audience for that type of media isn't quite as big as it used to be so I don't, I don't really see rom-coms pop up anymore in the theater or on, on my Netflix you should Other watch than this Tau. Yeah, yeah, I guess Tao is kind of a rom-com in, in, in regards to a woman falling in love with uh, her uh, her smartphone uh, for all intents and purposes. Uh, I'm sorry for making you watch that. I'm sorry. I've apologized for three <laughs> podcast episodes now. We all agree it's a bad movie. Joseph, I think the difference in that audience is those who would use the term Shiro's as if the word heroin never existed. <laughs> like heroin has been the female equivalent of a hero for some time now, but all of a sudden in this uh, fourth wave of feminism by academic terms, uh, she rose is, uh, is popular now, but so, so much for century, I mean. the language is changing Andre. It is. Yeah. Are you ready? You gotta, watch, change? you gotta watch out for those laughs. I mean, you might get canceled on Twitter. <laughs> so, <laughs> for the record I'm not on Twitter <laughs> smart choice so what is the I guess traditional rom-com being replaced with then there's got to be something that's taken its place and is it something like Captain Marvel because Captain Marvel is still uh, look at how much uh, I guess traction people with going all the way back to like the Ghostbusters reboot man you start talking about stuff like that and you can get into some pretty uh, knee deep shit with just how you discuss those topics and the criticism that comes from a movie like that or is directed at a movie like that. Well, so I'll, I'll talk about the um, Annihilation, which was something I did on my buddy Aaron's podcast. But it was it was all the main characters are women and they were basically going to rescue a man. And that's not a movie that would have been written 20 years ago. Hell, it's not a movie that probably would have been written 10 years ago. But there's a scene where Tessa Thompson is, or where they're talking and she tells them like, oh, what? like you're all women going and Tessa Thompson corrects her and says, no, we're scientists. And like, that's what we're looking at now is the main character of a Star Wars franchise is a woman. We're getting films written for women and for minorities at that, that we can all start relating to better. Um, Black Panther is the one we talk about a lot, but like this is, it's been a, a shift in people realizing, hey, other people want to see movies. Maybe we should write media for them. I, I just don't think that's true. And I, I like we've had instances of the of those type of uh, heroines or or uh, or, or men. Uh, like I'm, the first thing that came to mind for me was Sarah Connor in Terminator. That was from 1989 or something like yeah. that. And, and uh, for, if we're talking Black Panther, I mean. Blade is, I, I mean, a million times more badass than Black Panther. Let's be honest. <laughs> no, I agree. I love all three Blade movies, but it wasn't commercially successful. Ugh, all three of them? Even the third one with Ryan Reynolds? That Dude, one's the like one of the best. What's their name? Oh my gosh, that is the worst. Not even close. Okay, we, we're digressing. Uh, we're Triple digressing H is here. in that, Hondo? Triple H is in that movie. And you are Triple H, Hondo, so it can't be bad. We should probably get back on topic, though. <laughs> no, but all right, it, it all kind of plays in, it, it all kind of plays into the idea that 
everyone is addicted to something. I think it lands on that side of the the spectrum argument that it's not it's not just black or white or maybe it is. Jaime, hit me hit me with why it it should be discussed in that in that frame. In the spectrum versus black and white. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. I'm saying like we can frame it. We can frame anything in a way that makes someone addicted to something, and that's the driving force to the actions that they're they're that they're exhibiting. But you're you're still on the on the side of saying that everything is not everything, but the method of addiction is black and white. Oh, like the the clear cut signs, I guess. And 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 that's a yeah. and that's a good question. Like, at what point? Does it, whether it's it's a clinical uh, or or an acad- or an academic dios- diagnosis, so to speak, is at what point is that person considered addicted? Is it when they lose their front four teeth because they got into uh, a a bar scrap uh, with a drug dealer that they owed money to, uh, or is it you know because they took four hits this past? Saturday night or something, you know, and, and that, that's what and I haven't read into enough literature on that is that what point does addiction actually become classified as addiction? So take, for example, um, you know, some of the people that, that I work with, especially in the higher positions, uh, are spending a lot more time in in uh, throughout the work day and throughout the work week, uh, much more working hours um, than even uh, even other people who are on salary. Not, we're not even talking about the hourly employees at this point. Um, so is that a sign that they're a, quote, workaholic or are they just in an institution that's a part of an industry that the institution is struggling to keep up and keep pace with the change of technology. So they actually have to work that much. And the corporation doesn't feel like shelling out uh, more money for more employees to fulfill that role and maybe lighten the load a little bit. So is that person a workaholic or are they just doing what it takes to, to make ends meet? Is that person an addiction or an addict or not? So, Hey Joseph, you mind if I try to answer that real quick? Yeah, yeah, go for it. Okay, so I'm gonna I'm gonna go back into some personal experiences of mine without trying to make this too too dark. Um, I no, I, went, think- I went I went uh, Batman versus Superman dark, dude. <laughs> okay, well, I found out my mom's name was Martha, and my grandmother's name was also Martha. No, I'm just <laughs> no um, I would say that from my personal experience, the definition of addiction is when you let the absence of what fulfills you define how you react outside of that circumstance. And what I mean by that is, like, let's say that someone's addicted to, hypothetically, um, to taking drugs, right? And I'm going to emphasize the hypothetically part. That being said, the moment that I would classify the addiction is when you see that you look down at the absence of drugs and that absence defines your personality for the rest of the day, right? So I've seen people that are like, oh, crap, I'm out of my weed today. Oh, well. I guess I'll just get some when I talk to my dealer the next day or the next week or whenever. I've seen people that don't have any weed in front of them. They legit flip shit because they want their high, they want their take, they want it right now when they're craving it, and their inability to grasp that 
makes them react a certain way that they're not necessarily in control. So that's kind of where to kind of what Jaime was saying earlier is I feel like that I feel like it is a black and white. And I guess in the grand scheme of things, I tend to agree with Jaime, just not in the way that he's saying that is I feel like an addict is very easily defined. And it's when the absence of what satisfies them controls them in a context that they're not reacting towards in a positive mindset. And what I say by that is just like when you let not having your addiction define you or control how you react, then that tells me right then and there, like, no, that's an addict because you can't function properly without it. Right. So like Hondo, anybody, feel free to disagree, but yeah, Hondo, here's a question. So what happens when that addict uh, is so adept at hiding that condition? I can't think of a better word um, from everyone that they interact with that it isn't until the moment that they die from an overdose that no one even knew that was happening. Uh, so I'll give you an example. Uh, Elise Regina, popular Brazilian singer, uh, iconic songs that she made for Brazil. She was known as the voice of Brazil at one time. Um, I believe died at age 38 uh, from alcohol and drug overdose. It's something she very much kept from her family, uh, even though she would kind of go through periods of depression. Maybe that was a sign, maybe. Um, or maybe she just had that kind of personality, but really kept that from her family. So when that happened, it was such a shock. Sure, maybe some of the telltale signs were there, uh, but the openness of you know parading around stating that I- I've got to have my fix right now or else I'm not going to go on stage and perform. Like she actually did all that and had a family too, and then still went and did this. So what happens when the addict is so adept at hiding that addiction that it doesn't appear like that to anyone else? Well, I think so. And I could be playing on your words too much. So call me out if I'm not. But by you saying that they're hiding, you're already admitting that they're an addict to begin with. Right. Oh, so and, that's it, what I, and that's what I'm saying. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. But but instead of like you said that uh, that it's visibly affecting someone's behavior to where they can't function without them seeing it. So what if someone hides that from you? Like, how are you supposed to tell if that's actually an actual issue for them or a problem for them? Well, okay, so let's see. If we're talking. We're talking about like the, the the defining factor that puts you on one side or the other. If we're dealing with it, if we're dealing with it on a, a black and white basis, uh, let's get some other ideas on how that trigger uh, goes in. Andre, what what would you say is that trigger on 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 your end if you're seeing someone that makes them an addict or makes them not an addict? They're just someone that engages in vices or really needs it to survive. I mean, I don't think. I don't think you can always see it. I think you're going to miss that sometimes. And sometimes you see it and they're just a high functioning addict. So uh, the example I would use is, Adrian, you probably remember Charlie. Like the guy drank like a like a fish, but he was the nicest guy. He was a great father to his son. Like he never had – he was always at work. He sold the hell out of the product we had. But – Nobody ever said anything because I guess part of that is the culture we were in. But secondarily, the problem we run into is that we either become accustomed to it or we just don't notice what's happening. Yeah. So there's got to be, I guess, checks in society that force you to be introspective or force someone else to make you look inwards that are, is in your friends group or your 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 familial group, your, just like your close relationships. And Joseph, that's a good point, but I'm going to ask you straight up, like, does there need to be? So I was thinking about this, uh, driving up to, uh, to, to my place before we got on this podcast. So again, thinking about jazz musicians, right? So Paul Chambers, one of the greatest bassists of all time, died at 33 
of tuberculosis, and that was more than likely due to drugs and alcohol wearing down the system in his 20s um, to the point where he was 33. Uh, uh, my brother pointed out a good thing is that blues and jazz musicians either die like young or they live until they're 80, hence B.B. King. Uh, Mary Lou Williams lived till she was 92 or something like that. Um, so anyways, so uh, Paul Chambers, right, like made phenomenal recordings and thinking about that ar artist archetype and what they're able to provide, like, was that a behavior to correct? Obviously, the drinking and, and, and all that, like, yes, yeah, sure. Uh, but the impulsiveness, like, isn't always a bad thing. And being reckless and adventurous isn't always a bad thing so does society need those kind of corrective behaviors because if we didn't have the impulsive adventurous person like some people might not have anything to aspire to so like something that i guess comes out of that is you walk in a pretty dangerous dangerous line there because you you think about stuff that is obviously only existing in this world because you have someone that is extremely reckless, extremely impulsive, like you're saying. Um, you talk to people like Noel Gallagher and Liam Gallagher, who had outrageous fights with each other, uh, crazy brother relationship that they had on stage and off, just arguing about everything would get in uh, literal fist fights on stage. But they talk about their period of drug use and they talk about it with a recollection of those events being something that could only have stemmed from their ridiculous habits and they have to kind of live with and and i think it was noel who had this to say in an interview he was basically just saying that he has to be resigned to the fact that he's never going to make music like that 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 reaches that many people because he doesn't think that way or he's not in that headspace to create the way that he did when he was on those drugs so you're maybe right in a sense that there are artists that need that to create the art that they do but i don't think that's always a good thing that shouldn't just be like something that people are okay with because the other side of that coin is you could be not an artist still have that personality and then you can put others in danger like you're talking about what's the check uh, to see like the societal check to to see if someone is an addict, like a person who is addicted to the attention of an other would maybe see a restraining order as inhibiting their creativity to be close to that person and get more attention. <laughs> but I, I, I feel like I feel like I'm going to get a, a lot of kickback from from everyone else. So, so let's uh, Adrian, let's please Adrian. go, sir. I'm, I'm excited. You've been shaking worse than someone with Tourette's right now. So please, please continue. I don't think I've ever heard. Like, I, I, yeah, I don't think I've ever heard 10 minutes of more wrong in my life. Like, I, <laughs> I, I think there's something to be said about uh, disciplined spontaneity. I, I think there is someone that that's a living example that Hyman mentioned in terms of BB King, who's still making music that is still something worth listening to deep into his twilight years. Uh, when it comes to pop music, that that's a young man's game. It, it's not that they're musically aren't where they used to be it's that the zeitgeist has moved away from what they have to say both musically and lyrically i, I think a lot of people uh, don't realize the fact that that that's what it is like the the whims of the people that are 20 years old uh you can only 
be able to to give them a voice through your music uh, for as so long as you relate to them. And no matter what, time is going to make you older. But no matter what, the 20-year-old cohort is always going to be 20 years old. And you're not going to be able to relate to them after so many years. Uh, that's what happens to a lot of musicians, to a lot of people that uh, end up being uh, outside of the zeitgeist. It, it's not the fact that they started sucking all of a sudden musically. It's that people's tastes moved out of where they were comfortable making the, that music. Um, uh, I mean, that's that's true in, in some aspect, but another thing that just came to mind to me is, is Bill Cunningham, for example. So this guy, uh, there's a documentary on him. He's a street photographer, fashion photographer in New York. He had an article in the New York Times for years. So 20-year-old Bill Cunningham was taking the similar type of photos, obviously of different people at 20 years old, than he was at 80 years old. And he was actually 80 years old and still out there taking photography. Um, and if maybe the person who grew up 20 years old listening to whatever and their tastes change, um, that just means that it gives a whole nother, op- uh, an opportunity for a whole nother generation to then pick up on those tastes too. So I really don't think that anything fades like that necessarily over time, if that's what you were saying, Adrian. So are you disagreeing with yourself just like 10 minutes ago? Wait, what? <laughs> uh, so, okay, what what would be the... What would be... I think Jaime is very... Confused? Uh, terribly, terribly trying to say something like... Um, you talk about things like... Alice in Wonderland or Cujo or things that have staying power, things that are classic and also a is are they born of addiction? Was addiction what created them? Or are they just an outlet of someone that had talent that just happened to be I guess open to that talent because of the addiction that they were facing? I, I think that uh Art has a way of um, what becomes popular in art tends to be what taps into the collective unconscious and things that become classic are things that uh, as far as the collective unconscious goes, they they have a message or a meaning that is timeless. Um, And and, I mean, the the whole podcast that we, we were talking about today uh, or the series that we we decided to talk about are these timeless aspects of what it means to be a human. Um, and addiction, I think, is is timeless. Um, obviously, if it's something that's meant to be an archetype and documented as such, uh, I think when you think about things like Cujo or things like. Uh, other pieces you mentioned, but Cujo came to mind. There, there's something to be said about how we have we've tamed so much of this world, but there is still this underlying wildness to the world, and that that's a fear. And it, in novel form, he was able to explore that that archetype or that that fear that lives in all of us in terms of of what that is I, I don't know that addiction helped him get to a place where he could see that <laughs> but I, I do know that when it comes to spontaneity and spontaneity is really uh, tapping into your subconscious to be able to explore these things in, in a way that will 
your conscious mind won't just let you. I, I feel like it's a situation where some people do find things that people would label as addictive, um, as ways to kind of not turbocharge. Uh, what am I trying to say? Spark that initial spontaneity, and then they go after it afterwards. But but here's the thing: like that is the the attic archetype to a T. And once you become realized and, and like you can integrate that archetype into who you really are, that that becomes like a almost like a superpower that you can tap into whenever you feel like it. it it's like a it's like the Spider Man movie, you know, like he he had no control, he had no control, he had no control, and then once he was able to fully embrace this new person that he was like it really lived through the the death of his uncle because i feel like everyone has to go through that that piece where you you hit rock bottom and you you face death maybe not your death but maybe the death of the loved one maybe the death of your ego um but then out of that comes the rebirth and i feel like the addicts of the world i'm not in the black and white sense but the spectrum are the ones that get it flipped on its head and have the wrong order and they're really looking for the rebirth without the the death or before the death so this touches on something that i think is is pretty cool because it makes sense to me i don't know if it's going to make sense to any of y'all but there was a, a contemporary at the same time as uh carl jung writing about just things kind of like this but aldous huxley was doing some interesting experimentation uh kind of with the rest of the world with stuff like psilocybin lsd um i think psilocybin was what like just mushrooms was his main thing but he was coming up with these ideas and uh jung actually had a criticism of that um and it's the most uh just smart people thing that i've i've heard in a while just beware of wisdom you haven't earned which is about tapping into i think what you're saying that subconscious but gaining that wisdom without actually going through the steps to know why it's wisdom in the first place Uh, so that's pretty interesting and maybe that's what the addict is doing is trying to keep tapping into or expedite the process of that spontaneity in a way that doesn't let you just do it on your own. Yeah. I mean, uh, like an archetype that you see in stories or fairy tales is kind of like the, uh, the, the wizard or like the, the novice wizard, student wizard that goes and steals a spell book and like tries to use the most powerful spell and ends up bringing like death and desolation across everything because they didn't have the the willpower to to control what they were unleashing upon the world like that that really is are you specifically talking about hocus pocus right now i was actually talking about the sorcerer's apprentice (laughs) (laughs) but no i mean hocus pocus is actually a pretty good example of exactly that right like the how have y'all seen that oh my god It's a cultural touchstone, Hondo. Come on. No, it is not. Okay, so for those of y'all, for all five viewers that are listening right now, I had this conversation with the group. Hocus Pocus is a Disney movie with witches and is very much a kid's flake. I was they know, huh? never... They know. Yeah, they I, know. Say, okay. I don't know why you're explaining. that It's a cultural <laughs> touchdown. Because, Everyone has seen it. No, they have not. I, Jaime, you don't have a TV. You haven't seen this, right? 
Help me out here. Uh, yeah, I saw this like in an after school program years ago. Oh my dear lord! And I was like four years old or whenever it came out. Okay, so Jaime doesn't have a TV. <laughs> he, he's still seen it. And Actually, he's still seen it. Okay, I, I do have a TV now. Y'all, y'all he has a TV now. Yeah. <laughs> y'all are wrong. I'm right. It's weird that y'all seen it. Nice try. Nice <laughs> You need to go watch the movie. Just go watch the movie. It's like you know, no. Unfortunately, I have seen the movie. The addict in my mind is is getting an enjoyment out of trying to prove y'all wrong. So I'm just going to keep doing that. And that should justify the addict archetype that we've been talking about today. Right. So I'm just going to tell you all wrong. I'm going to keep pushing at it and I'm going to get a dopamine trigger from telling you y'all are wrong. Every time I say it, <laughs> you're going you're gonna to Josh it. No, no, I was going to say, you're going to Adrian it. <laughs> no, let's, let's get into that. Now I, I want to go around and, and talk about um, the, personal relationship you have with the addict archetype. I think if we're going black and white, you could go that way. If we're going on the spectrum, easier probably to do that. Uh, what's what's your relationship with that that spectrum or that uh, um, knowledge that someone is or is not an addict, someone adjacent to you or you yourself, re- your self-realization of any kind of addiction that you have? Let's try and map this to to who we are and, and the ar- archetype that the best instance of the archetype that fits us or fits our lives. If Jaime um, doesn't say I wanted, he's addicted to the idealized relationships, uh, we're, we're on the wrong track. <laughs> can't, is, it, bro. can't shake it. 500 days of summer? Yeah. <laughs> uh, no, I well, want to start. I want to start actually with Andre. I want to talk about anything he wants to talk about, but I want to hear what his take is on whether or not he's an addict for anything and uh, what he's done to or not done to change that about himself or whether he's identified someone that is an addict around him and how that changes how he deals with them. Yeah, well, I mean, I'm still of the belief that, like, I think everyone has something. It may not be as serious as others or, like, trying to score heroin on the street, but, like, everybody has something they're chasing or something they're trying to fill that that void with um which would mean i am yeah i'm I'm a dirty filthy addict um i was trying to think about this and like there's obviously been phases on what i've been addicted to because you just like swap it out i would like to clarify these are not illegal substances at all um but for the most part currently it's just like speed dirty rotten speed down i-10 um, and I think that's why <laughs> that's exactly. why I drive the car that I do, and it's why I take these road trips because. And we've talked about this in the past, but like when I'm on the road and the open road, like my mind is clear and I feel very much at peace. And I probably just should have been a truck driver, and that would have helped. But for me, like that's what it is. Like I like to go fast. Ricky Bobby, but is that is that a form? <laughs> is that a form of escapism though is there something that yeah, you need no, to clear sure. your head is it just life in general or is there something you can like parcel out so it's I don't know if it's a stress level but it does get to a point where like if I go two or three months without taking a trip through a Texas highway like it bothers me like I get stressed um, it's just you, you can tell that I'm like agitated and that's to me that's like the definition of the addiction like I need to be on the road yeah you let it control you when you don't have it yeah well I'm glad you can go two to three months with a break good, good job <laughs> yeah <laughs> 
let's uh, let's toss it to. Actually, no, Andre. Who do you want to go to next? Uh, I'm gonna throw it back to you, Joseph. Me? No, I definitely have uh, an addiction to probably a few things. I, I think I have a very addictive personality, and I do kind of hot swap between my addictions to be as social as possible with them. Um, so maybe I'm maybe I'm terrible at hiding them. Maybe I'm good at hiding them. I honestly wouldn't know because it's hard for me to put myself in a frame of reference for anyone else looking in at me. Uh, I think a lot of it is an addiction to what is going on at the time. I can be very focused on what I'm doing, but as soon as I lose any kind of interest, it's just uh, the addiction of the next thing like i'm constantly jumping from one thing to the other without any real willpower or discipline to go all the way through something and that's hard for me to deal with a lot of times um i don't know if that that is a legitimate description of an addiction but that's that is what it feels like to me because if i'm not jumping around from from point a to point b to point c to point d constantly i do feel ground down and not myself and uh, at the same time i i know that it's a self-destructive pattern like i know if i just finish something it'd probably be much better than just dropping it at a certain point and picking up something else and pretending to be good at something for a while until i get to a point where i actually have to be good at it and then switching to something else so maybe it's the the addiction of i don't know if it's attention the addiction of feeling like i'm doing something well you want those likes sure and those hearts in your life outside of just yeah, I went, and facebook I, I want those super likes on tinder uh i want all of it I want those uh, IMDb reviews, uh, even though I don't have a, an account on IMDb. I want a Wikipedia page. Uh, I want Yelp. Uh, I want three money signs on my Yelp page. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I would say I would say that that that's a good encapsulation of what my addiction is or could be or could be defined as. Um, Adrian, how about you? I feel like mine's weird in terms of what I know, like at least consciously. I'm sure there's plenty of things that I know that um Is it feet? No. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think it was black tar heroin. Yeah. I, I know I have all kinds of malfunctions uh, in, in my personality, but the one that I do know um can get me in trouble and, and not so much in trouble uh, in terms of drastically affecting my life but uh, it will lead me down uh, rabbit holes that'll make me be lethargic because I'll have not gotten enough sleep and, and sleep is really the the main uh, I guess negative factor with uh, the addiction that I have but it, it's uh, almost to the opposite effect of Joseph is uh, there, there's a certain thing to be said about finding something out or learning something or gaining a new understanding that leaves you feeling less confident in yourself 
or like what you knew in the past or like kind of uh, I, I forget what the name of the of the effect is called but the it's like, Kruger maybe maybe yeah 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 uh, so like the that feeling in the pit of my stomach that I get when I find something new that makes me question things that I thought I was sure of is something that I chase and it, I chase it to the point where I do think it's unhealthy in terms of like uh, if I don't check myself, uh, I, you're going to wreck yourself. It, it'd be very easy for me to, uh, to, yeah, to wreck myself and, and believe in like a, a conspiracy theory, you know? Um, but at the same time, uh, like staying grounded in reality is something that I, I try my best to do. Um, but like it, that doesn't stop me from researching way too much into things that I know don't matter. Um, when in fact I probably should be like spending time on, on productive things or, or things that would actually be of value. But, but I find myself oftentimes just going into rabbit holes just to, to see what's, what's at the bottom and only to find that the, that rabbit hole has seven different directions that I could go in and why not explore them all? And then it's 3 a.m. And I know I have to wake up in a couple hours because I'm, I'm on day duty with or morning duty with, with my, my son. But you know what? There's there's a couple more reference links on Wikipedia, so I'm going to keep on reading. Like that, that's I, that's I feel an addiction. Like your addiction is bathroom readers. Yeah, yeah. Like you you've just digitalized the bathroom reader, and that's what you're doing now. Yeah, like the amount of totally useless information I know is is something that's a, a kind of something to be proud of. But at the same time, it's like you've spent way too much time spending time researching things that are never going to affect you positively in life unless you end up on Jeopardy. Nice. So feel free to throw it to whoever you want to hear next. Well, I, I want to hear about Jaime's relationships. So let's, let's hear about Jaime, from Jaime. Oh, relationships. Oh, well, that's another story. Uh, first and, First, though, I, I really want to commend Joseph for quite possibly the most eloquent and articulate way to ever dodge a question I've heard. What was it, Joseph? Unsure of how to give a frame of reference to those who might be listening in? Wow, that's that's ace, man. I'll, I'll give you that. Um, I'm sorry, Adrian. What about my relationships? Oh, just, you know, your addiction. Uh, oh, uh, <laughs> you're addicted to them. Uh, I, I was uh, the death of an ideal occurs, and that's usually uh, when the when the relationship ends, I guess, and whatever prompts that or or brings that on, whether it's some self realization or a sign that I might have seen uh, in some way. I guess that's that's when it ends. Oh, uh, what? So what it, else? It, it, to know. <laughs> It ends when you want it to. <laughs> I, I I don't know. And I was thrown off by that question. But anyways, what I was going to say is that uh, I, I probably align closest uh, with Joseph is that I'll I'll go through these sort of creative spurts um, in my life. Dodge the questions. <laughs> uh, go through these creative spurts in my life where uh, I'm pursuing all of these artistic endeavors, whether it's writing music, DJing, or what have you, and get into it so intensely for a period of time, no matter what that period of time is, um, only to find myself checking out 
for whatever reason. Because what I've noticed is that when you just go all in on something, you just obsess about it, obsess about it, obsess about it, is that ultimately that's not sustainable. And so what happens is that you kind of get sick of it at the end of the day. And then you're like, okay, I got to check out and move on to the next thing. Uh, so we mentioned Jordan Peterson in this in this podcast, psychology professor and, and YouTube sensation lecturer, is <laughs> that he describes the the neuropsychology of addiction in that it's kind of like these synapses in your brain that form and just start layering on top of each other. Uh, and so the point is uh, to like you think the addict would think that okay, well I just need to stop doing this one thing and go pick up something else. Like we said, Eminem who stopped doing drugs and now he's running on the treadmill for eight hours a time. But you're still just as addicted because that's that type of personality. So the synapses disappear one place and come up in another. Uh, so the goal to I guess beat addiction, if 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 that's the kind of term you want to use, is to really spread that out. Uh, amongst all the different aspects that you have of your life so that way you can check in on this artistic endeavor or your family members or your friends or your workplace and that way you're kind of just dropping in and you're keeping these things tempered and metered like so it's actually adjusting your behavior and not just trying to quote kick the habit i mean can you give me a tldr there on what your addiction is oh uh, it's more like well i said all these artistic endeavors um but okay uh, but it's more like uh, I'm trying to understand like how to sustain that over time so it can be that much more fruitful instead of like Adrian said checking out after chapter one. To to Adrian's initial question, it it kind of sounded like artistic endeavors was just a, a veiled, uh, masked way of saying relationships because <laughs> it sounds like that's the exact relationship that you have with relationships, which is interesting. But uh, we'll we'll. We'll maybe touch on that. Um, I mean, going let's, based let's on kick it over. murder. Well, well, no, I, I think it, I don't really know what to say. I, I think you need to listen to what your description of your addiction is and then just replace every time you say artistic endeavor with relationships and, and see what that sounds like. You move it on. <laughs> Oh, sorry. Uh, kicking number two, Hondo. Um, yeah, I'm just going to straight up admit it. I, I'm very much an addict um, in pretty much every concept of the word. Um, I, I look, f- and that's where it kind of, it's like a blend of both arguments that we've been having today, right? I agree very much that it's very, mu- it's very much black and white in the sense that you either are or are not an addict. But I also believe that once you have defined that you are an addict, that definition of an addict is very much on a spectrum in regards to how severe it can be. Um, so first off, I, am very much addicted. Um, and I think it's definitely more on the, uh, intense side of the scale. Um, I can't attribute it to one thing or the other. Um, the closest I can figure out is I'm addicted to stimulation. Um, so whether that be, um, for people that don't have, uh, that don't know me, I'm very much into working out a lot. Um, I get, a rush. This is going to sound really weird, um, but I get a rush from the pain. Um, the idea of feeling that sense of my muscle tearing apart as I'm trying to lift something, it gives me very much uh, a sense of being alive um, that I yearn for. Um, and I do notice that when I have extended periods of not working out, whether it be due to injury or um, for whatever reason, that I, I do see shifts in my moods and my mentalities, um, much of which I don't feel like I'm in control of. Um, and that mindset 
goes across several concepts. It can be in regards to cooking. It can be regards into states of mind in regards to me working out. Um, so I think it's very much that concept of I, I strive for that sense of stimulation. And I've noticed that when I don't find that constant sense of stimulation, I find myself looking for it. And when I can't find it, that's when I see my drive for that starting to control who I am and take control of how I choose, how I feel as opposed to me deciding how I feel. Um, so that's kind of where mine comes from in the sense of the addict is very much not in control of how they're supposed to feel. Um, and I see that very much in a lot of what I do, which is why I strive very hard to at least try. It, it's very much, uh, I feel like I'm riding a carriage that I cannot necessarily tell the horses to slow down, but the best I can do is try to steer them in the direction that I think is best. Um, and it's something that it's one of those things where you have good days and you have bad days where sometimes it feels like the carriage is going right where you want it to go. And other days it's just dear Jesus, I'm throwing the reins to the side and just pray to God. I don't crash. Um, but I, that may I def- have been the best analogy we've gotten. <laughs> yeah. And it almost kind of sounds like the, the, the actual lover archetype where you're taking those known faults in your personality or your uh, channeling your addiction into something that's actually useful and yeah. that's well, pretty resourceful. That I, I, being in control yeah. of it, right? Like not having it control you. Yeah, I think the biggest the biggest thing that we haven't really talked about here is that the, the concept of being an addict, I, I think, uh, again, I may be digging too deep into here, but I, I think the first piece that you have to understand in order to discuss it is you first have to accept it right and that's one of the biggest things that i had to deal with is when we're talking about addiction or when we've had conversations about addicts outside of just this group of friends is it's that internal looking within yourself and first having to admit that yeah you know what i i may very much be an addict and kind of to what you was saying it doesn't necessarily have to be a bad thing right it's understanding who you are it's understanding how you work and it's putting yourself in the best position to work with it instead of constantly trying to fight against it. And that's where I think having that constant battle with it is more detrimental because it's more, it's that mindset of, Oh, I just got to fill that void. Oh, I just got to find something that's positive to fill that void. And that's where you kind of go through that M M&M cycle where you think you have a better void to fill, but it still doesn't take away from the fact that you're feeling that you have a void in the first place. And I think the first step to conquering that void is admitting that it's there in the first place. And a lot of people aren't willing to do that. I feel like that well was said, the well said. last word, Joseph. I don't know how you feel. No, I'm, I'm thinking that that's, that's going to be the last words for this one. But um, no, I think now only thing we have to do is decide. And it sounds like it kind of is decided based on the discussion that I sparked earlier. Uh, the media that we're going to consume to just kind of lay over this framework that we've built about what the archetype of the addict looks like in something that is popular in media. Um, I think when we're talking about rounders, it was a pretty good description of all the different kinds of addiction or whether it's spectrum or black and white or whether you can channel your addiction in a way that is sensible and resourceful or whether you can just kind of let it destroy you. Um, what it takes to create and what it takes to just succumb. Uh, so I don't know. Is everyone in agreement that that sounds like a, a pretty good way to go for for next week? For for the sake of being the uh, just for debate here, um, I'd like to submit a different movie for recommendation because I feel like sure. it embraces the the addict archetype in a way that maybe we haven't thought about. 
Um, I would like to recommend the first Iron Man. Um, and the reason why I would like to do so is because I believe that Tony Stark embodies a lot of the concepts of the attic that we've been talking about. And again, putting my personal preference in, in this conversation, I feel like we see a true acceptance of the attic versus a conquering of it in the end when he stands up and says, you know what? I'm not going to try to pretend I'm not who I am. I am Iron Man. And I feel like that's, it's a very, really good example. And maybe I just killed the whole point of talking about this right now. But like, I, I feel like it's a really good example of someone understanding their ad, understanding their addiction, learning to live with it. And instead of conquering it, it's, they just learn to define it instead of being defined it by it. And it's, it's a good way to look at it from a different perspective. Yeah, what's that word that uh, Young used? Time it integrate it. Integrate. Yeah, yeah. So like taking that quality about your personality and integrating it into who you are, and yeah, because I just it useful. Yeah, because I, I just feel again we've talked about archetypes, and by definition of what we've been referring to, an addict is a shadow archetype, which generally has a negative connotation. But it, depending on how you phrase it, or depending on how you apply it, it doesn't necessarily have to be negative, and it can actually be very beneficial if you just learn to integrate it in a way that best suits you. So to also cover a couple of the other points, I was going to recommend Rock and Rolla. Because that shows you like how deep the hole goes. Yeah. No, I, I don't see. I don't see why there's a reason we can't kind of come to the table with all three having. I mean, I'm sure we've yeah. all seen them multiple times, so it's going to be easy to just kind of throw uh, throw different versions of what this archetype looks like at the wall, and then come up with different examples. So come ready to talk about it. But I think let's 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 go with all three. I, I like the idea of coming at it from different perspectives in those kind of ensemble cast you've got in rounders you've got the uh embracing of the addiction and just the succumbing to the addiction uh in rock and roller so no i i'm uh i'm of the i'm of the thought that we go with all three if that sounds good to everyone else i mean i enjoy all three of these movies so like i have no problem watching all three of them this weekend yeah that, that'll be easy <laughs> I haven't seen Rock and Rolla, so I'm looking forward to seeing what it's about. It's a good one. Yeah, it's it's a good one. All right, y'all. This has been good. I enjoyed it. I think we're going to be out. So thanks to everyone. This has been Flat Circle Podcast. Flat Circle from the Gaistos Podcast Network. Remember, be yourself just like everyone else, and we'll catch you next time. (laughs) 